uh, throughout the week. So I encourage you, take part in that so we can be on mission together. We already are on mission together, but now you kind of get to see it even more. Amen? All right. Um, one thing I always like to, get, to do right before I you know, declare his word to his people is encourage you to read the word of God. And, and in light of today's message, read Deuteronomy 31, verse 8. Deuteronomy 31, verse 8. Read that in light of today's message. Second, I always encourage you to pray consistently who with whoever, because prayer is a great reminder that God's in control of things and you're not. Amen? And that's a good thing. And lastly, I always encourage you to be ready to talk about uh, the gospel with people. And you know, here's one of the ways you could do that. Though it didn't lead me into a full-on gospel conversation, it's something you can do. The other day I was out and about amongst the uh, just, you know, buying, shopping, the whole nine yards, and, so, and the, the guy asked me, oh, how has your weekend been so far? And I said, my weekend is just getting started. This was actually yesterday. And he said, just getting started. I'm like, that's right, because I'm, I'm a pastor, and I'm going to church on Sunday. It's, that's the, my highlight. And he's like, oh, really? And then he turned out he was a Christian. But that's just the way to kind of talk about the gospel, right, to kind of lead into that conversation. How's your weekend going? Well, it's just about to begin, because Sunday's the day of excitement for me. So let's go to the Lord in prayer as we begin today's message. Father, thank you so much for being good, as the song said. You are good, and that is enough. Lord, oh, how I wish that I would be satisfied with that more often. I pray for all of us to be satisfied with that wonderful statement. You are good, and that's enough. Lord, forgive us of our sins. Forgive us for not thinking of you as much as we should, for for not following your ways as much as we should, for not acknowledging you as much as we should. But, oh, praise be to you, Lord, who just gives grace upon grace to us, even though we sin against you, but you still love us. Oh, thank you for that wonderful thing. God, we also, we want to uplift with all, with everything that's going on in the wars around the world with Israel, Lord, and the whole, all of that, Father. It's such a nasty thing that's happening. Lord, we know this world is a nasty place. Lord, we pray that peace would come about there. We pray peace will come because of Jesus' name, not just because of some politician, not because of some principle, Lord, but because of Jesus. That's what we want. We want people to come to know you, whoever they are, wherever they've been, with whatever background they've had. We pray that they will come to know you and the Christians there will be empowered and, and, and just with full of boldness to declare your name. God, be with us, Lord. We pray that we can do the same as we go out and talk amongst the world, uh, world, amongst the people who don't know you, or maybe those who think they know you but don't really. We pray that we can be the vessels and the tools that are just overflowing with your love, and it just spews out just wonders of, of your grace, Lord, to everyone. Convict us of our sins here, Lord. Reveal them. We're really good at hiding them. We're good at justifying them. We're good at saying, this is just the way it, things are. God, help us repent of such things. And just say, no, there is power. There is change. There is true life. And that's by trusting and resting in your promise. Help us, Lord, to live this faith that you have given us consistently openly, and boldly. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. 
Okay, so today our text is 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18. And this is one that's really bursting with encouragement for Christians. Paul here is really going to speak about the wonders and the certainty of Christ's return to earth. And how this should empower us all to be, you know, to press on more with hope in our faith until that glorious day. And, and that's really kind of the main point of this text, that Paul's just giving encouragement upon encouragement. So our title today is The Encouragement of Hope in Christ's Return. But there's another point of this text that I want to point out that I, I at least want us to have in the back of our minds as we take apart this text. And that other point is this, is that we are truly saved by faith alone in Jesus and his gospel message of grace. This small yet powerful message of the gospel that's summarized in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 through 4, that says that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with scriptures. If you believe that, you are fully and truly saved. And you might say, well, why are you bringing this up? I thought we're talking about the Lord's return. I bring this up because today's passage reveals that you don't have to have all the doctrines of the Christian faith figured out to be saved. You don't have to be perfect in your theological outlook of the Christian faith to have God's full favor and blessing and salvation upon you. All you need is to believe the gospel message, and that is it. Faith in Christ and his gospel brings full salvation to you, even if you really don't understand everything else. And that should really be a great encouragement for us. I know it is to me. Because there are many things in God's word that I just don't understand fully or have a full picture of. In fact, I might even have things wrong. Now, should we try to learn more about biblical doctrine? Of course. And will God help us? Will he encourage us in our understanding of him and his ways and his teachings of the Christian faith? Yes, he will. But praise be to him that our right standing with him our justification before him, our adoption, our blessing, our favor before him, our salvation is not based on how much we know, but it's based that we do know and believe the gospel alone. So in a nutshell, if you have an, un, an incomplete understanding or even misunderstandings of the Christian faith, you're still fully saved. The only essential is you believe the gospel. And that's why the gospel's good news. For it's fully and truly finished over us in Christ, just by faith in him alone. So we're going to look at the text and see how we can grow in our understanding then of the Lord's return and be more encouraged and strengthened in him as we live out our lives in today's crazy world. So 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13, it says, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that, may, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. So 
Paul now is moving on to a new topic in our text or in this book, but a topic that they really didn't know much on or of. It was something that apparently that Paul did not really cover while he was with them in this short duration. This is why he stated, but we do not want you to be uninformed. For it was this uninformed or unknown aspect of the Christian faith that was creating wrong beliefs amongst the Thessalonians. It was causing apparent deep sorrow or at least leading them to have this deep grief to the point where it was affecting certain outlooks of hope in their Christian faith. Or put differently, for as much as they have persevered uh, through the persecution that was going on and as much joy and as much hope that they had in Jesus of knowing him all by faith alone, when it came to this one subject at least, their hope was seemingly being snuffed out or on the route of becoming seemingly kind of hopeless in this one area. Now, even though apparently they had bad theology in this area, Paul uplifted them and affirmed them as still being of his family in Christ by calling them brothers. So what was the issue that was creating a sense of hopelessness for them? Well, it was in the realm of what happens to believers who have died before the return of Christ and the resurrection that will happen at that time. So when Paul refers to those who are asleep, he's speaking about those who have died already. So, which, by the way, the Bible many times refers to believers who have died as ones who have fallen asleep. For example, in Acts chapter 17, verse 60, in referencing to the stoning of Stephen, it says, and falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice. This is him as he's being stoned to death and the flesh is ripping off his face because everyone's so angry with him. He says, Lord, strike them down. No, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep, and then he died. So, referring then to dead believers as ones who sleep is a comforting way of explaining the death of Christians to just mean that they're finally and literally resting from their labor now and are alive and are present with Christ in heaven, awake, conscious in their immaterial state. Basically, their souls are in heaven with the Lord, though their physical bodies are here with us. But for our context, the questions that the Thessalonians were dealing with that was causing hopelessness, that was causing grief, was what happens when Christ then comes back to earth? What happens to those who are with Christ but without their physical bodies, right, their souls, however you want to think of it, are they left up there alone without him when he comes back? Will they miss out on seeing Christ return to reign forever on earth with those who are still alive? Will they not be able to take part in his return and get new physical bodies themselves? So it's questions like this that caused worry amongst them. 
that believers who passed away would not take part in Christ returning to earth. The Thessalonians thought those who died would be left by Christ alone to live in their immaterial soul state, to never be reunited with their loved ones in their new physical bodies with Christ on earth when he came back. So, I mean, basically, the genuine worry, right, is that those who are alive, when Christ comes back, will have this great advantage of having new bodies to dwell with him forever on earth in his newly, fully restored kingdom. But those believers who would pass before that happened would basically have no part in that. So I just want to make sure we're clear on this. We're clear that the believers who died before Christ come back or comes back, they were thinking that they had some major disadvantage in death, even though they were believers and they were saved, the people who passed. They were thinking that death still created some mass separation somehow between them and the Lord that would only be amplified when Christ came back. And this was what was causing grief. They began to see death as kind of this hopeless state because death for them meant missing out, seeing the glorious return of Christ and getting new bodies to reign with him forever. So Paul here then begins to help clarify this misunderstanding of what happens to believers who are dead when Christ returns. This is, and this is what he focuses on in our section of scripture today. In verse 14, he says, for since we believe that Jesus died, and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with them, bring with him those who have fallen asleep. And here Paul basically runs to the gospel in which they believe to help them go deeper into it to reveal its promises to them. He gives them the truth of the gospel to set them free from grieving like others who don't have any hope at all. In death. Now notice, in verse 14, Paul does not refer to Christ's death as he slept and rose again. But says Jesus died and rose again. There's a wordplay here, basically. Meaning that Christ's death went to the full extent of what death is. If you were to sit there like a philosopher, and death is this and this. Christ went to the full extent of it. Christ bore all the wages of sin. He bore every aspect of being separated from God. He dealt with the full wrath. Christ exhausted death so that it could have no hold upon him, but also have no hold upon us at all. In that, it would somehow separate us from the full restoration to God. And as proof, Paul says that Christ rose again. Christ came back to life and was resurrected unto a new body that would never taste death again. Death lost all hold upon him and all those who place faith in him. Christ says this in Revelation chapter 1, verses 17 through 18. He says this, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, 
And behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. So whatever boundary, whatever border death created between God and man, Christ has abolished it by his own works and has blessed us with his achievements through faith in him alone. And so Paul then plants himself upon the gospel promise and says, through Jesus, in verse 14, or because of what Christ has done for them and us upon the cross, he says in verse 14, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Meaning that God will make sure no one is left behind at his coming. Because again, his son has broken down every wall and every hindrance, including the wretched, horrific state of death itself that would stop people from fully participating and fully enjoying the blessings of what Christ has earned for his people which includes all the wonders and joy of seeing and experiencing and participating and reigning with Jesus in new glorified bodies with his people forever in his return to earth. So Paul here is basically saying this is the promise that that is grounded in the gospel which we all believe. This is why we have hope for those who have passed on to be with Christ in heaven and hope for us to see them again, and hope for all of us to enjoy Jesus forever. So on a side note, Paul in our text, just real quick, is not saying you can't grieve at all when Christians die, right? He doesn't say you have to get up there and start partying, okay? For he himself stated that he would be in much sorrow if he lost Epaphroditus, In Philippians chapter 2, verse 27, this is what Paul says. Indeed, he was ill or near to death, but God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but also me, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. So it's okay to cry over a lost loved one who is a believer in the Lord. But what he's saying is you don't need to grieve without hope of not seeing them again, or that that somehow death has brought upon them loss in the Lord, as if death somehow has won, which is so far from the truth. Death now, because of Christ, is now a blessed tool for our glory in Jesus. It now is a passageway. It's a great opportunity to see him face to face forever, as it states in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Verse 8, it says this, because the moment we die, we go right with the Lord. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. Death is a good thing for Christians. Bad things for non-believers, great things for Christians. Paul then proceeds to ground this certainty even more by saying not only is this the promise of the gospel, that every dead believer will be part of the great resurrection at Christ's return. They will get new bodies, just like those who are alive at his return, and they will reign with Christ forever at his coming. But also, but also, this is something that Christ himself has said 
is going to happen. It's not just an interpretation. Christ, in some special revelation to Paul, has told Paul this clearly so as to make sure there's no misunderstanding about this, which is why he says in verse 15, for this we declare to you by a word from the Lord. And then Paul proceeds to give major, major details of what happens to those believers who passed away when Christ comes back and what happens to believers who, who are alive at his coming back. He gives a vivid, somewhat practical picture of what the coming of Christ will look like so that no one is mistaken that it's happening. He paints this picture in verses 15 through 17. So let's read the whole thing in one shot, starting in verse 15. That we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first, then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we always will be with the Lord. So in verse 15, Paul states that when Christ comes back, the people who are alive at that time will not precede those who have fallen asleep, those who have died. Why is that significant? Well, the key word is precede. It basically means to have an advantage, right? Because that's the worry that the Thessalonians had. So in, in verse 15, Paul here is stating the absolute fact that those who are alive will have no advantage over those who have passed on before Christ's return. For all of his followers, the ones alive upon the earth and the ones who, are di who died are in heaven, will receive and fully take part in all of the blessings that come with Christ's return. Then in verse 16, he states three events that whether in heaven or on earth, everyone will see, will, will see happen before the resurrection happens. It's going to be seen to all. The first is that Christ will come with a and give a shout of command. Now, what that shout is, I'm not sure. But Jesus does talk about his voice being heard when he does come back. It says in John chapter 5, verses 28 through 29, Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Paul goes on to say, then, with the voice of an archangel. Again, what the archangel will say, who this archangel is, well, doesn't say. But Jesus does say that angels will be accompanying him when he comes back. He says this in Mark chapter 8, verse 
38. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Then lastly, Paul puts here the third thing. And with the sound of the trumpet of God. What is the trumpet of God? What's that trumpet? What's it sound like? I don't know. But throughout the Old Testament, generally the trumpet, when you see a trumpet, there's lots of places in Scripture, it's generally used, the trumpet that actually proceeds from God, not some guy blowing a trumpet, but just radiating the sound, was used to declare some announcement or some summons of God in the Old Testament when he shows up. For example, you see this in Exodus 19, 16 through 19. And you can read it even before you can read that whole chapter, but I just want to read a section of it. And on the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast, so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a clean. And in the whole mount, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder. Moses spoke, and God answered him in the cloud. One thing's for sure that Paul is stating here: it will be a very loud day, very noisy, when Christ returns. His presence will be known. It will not be ignored and will not be mistaken. But for our context, Paul is saying this really all for their comfort of those, of their worry about those who have passed on. So that trumpet, though it marks Christ's return, it also marks comfort. Because when the blast of the trumpet is heard, Paul is saying, then Christ wonders what he has accomplished with his own resurrection will be fully and finally, completely experienced by all his believers. The glory of the gospel is just going to shine forth on that day. For Paul says in verse 16, after the trumpet blast, the dead in Christ will rise first. Meaning those who have believed upon Christ, those who have passed away, but now, but now have been brought by God, right? It says that God will bring them in verse 14. Brought by God now in this moment to participate in this glorious moment of history. That then, then when that trumpet blasts, they'll be reunited with their new bodies. Because the word rise, men, rise there means to come back alive physically from the grave to be resurrected. And as they're standing there all over the world in their new bodies upon this earth, Christ says in verse 17, 
then that we who are alive, who are left, or the believers who are left on this earth, because all the ones who passed away are arisen now at, at that trumpet sound, we who are alive, who are seeing this, he says, we will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Meaning that those who have risen and have new bodies and those who are alive and now have been transformed into new bodies at that trumpet sound after those people came back to life, then we'll all at once in this one-time unison will be brought up to meet our Lord and participate in his return, in his descent upon earth, together as his one people to reign with him forever. Paul speaks of the same event in 1 Corinthians 15, 51 through 52. This is what he says. And behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. What a day that will be. What a day to look forward. Why wouldn't you want to participate in that? That's an exciting day. Do you get it? No matter how bad your life is right now, there's something good coming. Something's good coming. But before we end, notice how Paul says at the end of verse 17 and into verse 18, and so we will always be with the Lord, right? That was their concern. We will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Paul comes back to show and encourage that no matter what happens in death, no matter what happens in life, nothing will separate Christ from his people. He will always be with them. For God has said in Ezekiel chapter 37, verse 27, my dwelling place shall be with them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And he means it. He will not forsake us at all. Nothing will ever separate us from our God. He will always be there with us, whether in life, whether in death, or in the new life that Jesus will provide for all of us at his return. So with that good news, we are to encourage one another with that. Christ has taken care of everything for us all by faith in him. We cannot out his grace. Our death cannot keep him away from him being with us. For he is ours and we are his forevermore, forevermore. And I'm going to close with this passage of reading Romans chapter 8, verses 31 through 39, in light of what we hear, heard here today. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? 
he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than many, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of God? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, nakedness, danger, or sword, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, angels, rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. It is finished in Christ. With that, we're going to go in prayer. If you'd like to pray with one of the deacons, they'll be up here. If you'd if you like to pray after the song to, with one of the deacons, they'll still be up here. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, it is such an exciting thing to think about that event that your son is coming back. God, help us know that all things will be made right, that there is this glorious day, that this earth, that it's all, that with everything that's going on, Lord, that's with all the destruction and nastiness that's seemingly happened, that everything will be accounted for, and one day there will be absolute peace. One day there will be absolute rest. One day there will be this wonder of seeing you face to face with all the believers that have been. Oh God, what a day we get to look forward to. That as our bodies decay, as relationships are broken, Lord, that one day everything will be restored and we no longer have to deal with death. We no longer have to deal with tears. We no longer have to deal with pain. We just can have joy. Joy unhindered by trouble. For its presence will finally be abolished. Its power is now abolished and one day the presence will be gone. Oh, thank you, Lord. Oh, God, I pray that today, if someone doesn't know you, that today be the day they make that choice to follow after you, so they too can know the wonders of your love and mercy and be adopted as your child to live eternally with you. We pray this in your son's name.